There are people around the world who are using leaves, who are using socks, scraps of material. They're cutting up their kids' clothes because they can't afford products. You know, there are, there are girls who don't go to school. Like there's a school in Uganda that we're supporting. 60% of those girls don't go to school every single month because they, because they have a period. I mean, imagine that. Imagine not having the education that your brothers have just because you have a period. You're listening to Asylum Speakers, the podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara. Together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those with lived experience of displacement and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. I'm loving that I've got a little theme going on with the podcast at the moment, elevating and amplifying the stories of incredible women. If you haven't listened to the recent episode that I put out about Sudan, we hear from three amazing women on that one. And then in the last episode, I treated you on International Women's Day to Khalida Papal, who is the former captain of the National Women's Football Team of Afghanistan, and who continues to do life-saving work for Afghan women and girls. And then in this episode, we continue the theme and we hear from another five incredible women about a very important topic, period poverty. Now, this might not be a term that you're familiar with, but my lovely guests will soon shed some light. Before we start, I would like to share a few words myself about our sponsor for this episode, Love Welcomes. Love Welcomes is a female-run social enterprise employing women with refugee status right here in London to make beautiful products such as homewares, table settings, gifts and more. And they have generously given our listeners 10% off with the code WWT for Worldwide Tribe at checkout on their website lovewelcomes.org. Now over to our first guest of the day, Ella. She is the founder of the Patch and Mama Project who make reusable sanitary pads for refugees, but I'll let her explain more. My name's Ella Lambert, I'm 22 years old now, and I am the CEO and founder of the Pachamama Project, which is basically an organisation I set up back in the quarantine in 2020 to grow a network of volunteers all over the world to make reusable sanitary pads for people who deal with period poverty. So lots of people don't actually know what period poverty is, but it's basically when people cannot afford sanitary products or don't have access to the safe spaces or the spaces in order to use them. And so we particularly focus on the refugee community just because as people on the move, they're probably the most likely group to go through period poverty, you know, not necessarily having an income or having the access to support as people do when they're sort of in a stable place. But we have also supported, you know, vulnerable schoolgirls in rural communities who were missing out on school because they couldn't access period products. I always suffered with the worst period pain ever. People used to sort of brush me off, I think, but it used to make me throw up or pass out this pain. And I would miss school every single month. And I was so, so lucky that I have incredibly supportive parents who really speak very openly about this kind of thing. And that's definitely not the case for a lot of people. I think it took about seven years for me to finally get seen, you know, by the right doctor and get the the attention that I needed. But luckily now I don't have any problems at all. I've never been in a situation where I can't afford products, but I do know what it's like to miss out on really important things because I have a period. And I know what it's like to have to deal with that stigma and taboo and not be able to say, oh, I'm missing this because of my period and actually have to say I've got a headache or something. And I I just don't think that it should be anything that anyone has to deal with. Like, Why should you not go as far in life because you have a period when it's a basic human right, surely, to have sanitary products? It's like drinking water or like eating food like you need it to to live your life 
And so, yeah, I, I don't want anyone else to have to go through that, especially not people who are living in camps who don't have access to even you know their basic necessities. And then was it when you went to Lesbos that you kind of put those two things together? No, so this is the thing. I started the project in the first quarantine. I'd never done any NGO work. I'd never met anyone from the asylum system or anything. I wanted to, and I you know, really wanted to go and work with NGOs and things and volunteer, but I saw because of the pandemic that it probably wasn't going to happen. And so I set up my own thing. I just said, well, I'm not just going to sit here and do nothing. I want to help, and this is a very easy way that I can, and I've got a very personal reason why I want to. And, yeah, that work took me to Lesbos. I ended up moving there six months later for nine months. And so, yeah, we started in 2020, and um, I learned how to sew. I contacted every single person that I could possibly think of, you know, everybody that was making masks and scrubs during that time. I contacted them and asked them if they wanted to get involved. And we just had the most incredible response. We had people coming to the door every single day for about two months, dropping off bags and bags of material. We had pads coming out of our ears. A year and a half later, and we've got 50,000 pads. We're distributing them in seven countries. We have volunteers in, well, it's nine countries and counting, because every day we have someone new who's in a different part of the world who's making them as well. I mean, this work took me to Lesbos. It took me to, you know, I moved to a different country. It's turned my life completely upside down in the best possible, possible way. And I think I've seen the absolute best of humanity of people in this cause trying to help help people that they, they don't know, you know, and they don't necessarily know anything about. And I think it's also opened my mind to a world of pain, which I knew nothing about, because I came from a very probably privileged background in a bubble, really. And I'd actually never even met someone in the asylum system before I started the project. And now I have, a, you know, a host of amazing friends and people who I would actually call family who are in, the, in this community. And I think what I've seen more than anything else is that we are all just people and it really doesn't matter what you look like or where you've come from or what you do for a living. We have this incredible shared humanity and you know, I've created friendships with people who don't even speak my language. It's just like this incredible world that I've walked into, really. You speak about that so beautifully and I could not agree more. And, you know, on a biological, physical level, periods is a really good representation of that, right? That women across the world are experiencing this every month. And I really wanted to get a little bit more beneath that term. I appreciate you for already really giving a good insight into the meaning of period poverty but do you have any examples or stories of people that you have met along the way who represent how important it is to have access to the right products for your period? Yeah absolutely I mean the word period poverty I mean I think that's something that people don't even really know about or have heard about because of the stigma is so strong it's not something that we speak about openly and I mean I can give you the definition like I have already but what that actually means is that there are people around the world who are using leaves who are using socks scraps of material you know there are there are girls who don't go to school like there's a school in Uganda that we're supporting 60% of those girls don't go to school every single month because they because they have a period. I mean, imagine that. Imagine not having the education that your brothers have just because you have a period. In Lebanon, for example, pads can cost as much as £17, just one pack. I mean, even the most privileged of people, they can't be affording that. You know, you know, some people have really heavy periods and will have like 10-day periods. You can't be affording that every single month. It's ludicrous. And um, what that means for the refugee community who live in settlements, in, in tented settlements who really have extremely little and the economic crisis is horrific there, so everything costs a huge amount. It means that they're cutting up their kids' clothes because they can't afford products. You know, their kids' perfectly usable clothes. And the response that we've had from women in Lebanon when receiving the reusable pads, which last three to five years, so they really sort out this problem for the foreseeable future, is just, it's huge emotion, actually, it's relief, but it's huge emotion that someone's thought of that, you know, because most people, because it's so taboo, they won't even necessarily have thought of the idea of reusable pads. And so my partners and I, we like to think that we're starting the sort of period revolution in Lebanon, sort of, you know, changing the conversation, getting people to think about an alternative product and these things spread through word of mouth. And, you know, we've 
it's been quite surprising actually, but we've had this amazing response with people just desperate to get their hands on them because you, we never really knew when we started having, you know, thousands of them come through the door if people would actually want them because it does take, you know, a lot of time to ship these things out and get the, get the feedback and everything like that. But we're thrilled to say that our pads and um, disposable pads as well in the free shop in Lebanon where we is sort of our main partner, they are like the most popular item now. So that's huge because that feels like, you know, we're really fulfilling a need that people might not even have thought of. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't realise that. And I'd love to hear your take on the different needs and environments that lend themselves better to reusable or disposable pads and the choices that you're offering people or women and why. I quite often get asked this, like, oh, but what, what do you do if you know people don't have access to washing facilities and things like this? And, and the, the truth is we just have to be really specific on the partners that we work with and the, and the people that we support. You know, we, we just know that not everyone can use this product. But as organisations dealing with period poverty in general, like we just have to have a multifaceted solution. This is not a one size fits all solution that we can come up with because you have communities where they can't use tampons, for example, because of the issue with virginity. And so things like the Moon Cup, there's this amazing product which lasts, I think it lasts, some of them last like all your life. I mean, what a fantastic thing. And yet, um, you know, if you have an issue with virginity within your culture, that's not something that you can necessarily use and pads might be better for you. And in other places, like in Lesbos, for example, where I was working in Greece, it's an island just off of Turkey, in the camp, they just didn't have the washing facilities that they needed in order to use the reusable pads. And so luckily, there were a huge number of organisations there distributing disposables, and we were able to concentrate on providing them for the people that lived in the city who didn't necessarily have access to those NGOs because they weren't in the camp. And so, yeah, we just have to come at it together at all angles. And I think that's something really amazing, which I've experienced through this project is all these incredible organisations, grassroots organisations, which are willing to work together. And you see a lot of competition in the sector sometimes. And that's not something I've seen in the period poverty situation, this period poverty sector, that we're all just really happy to collaborate. And we just want to take this problem away for people. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Another thing that I just really want to kind of dig a little bit more beneath the surface of is that there are many issues uh, for women who are living in refugee camps or challenges that they face on their journey. And I was wondering if you could shed a little bit more light for us as outsiders or listeners, not really knowing what those kind of everyday toilet facilities or washing facilities, if you could share a little bit about your experience of that and some of the other challenges faced by women in camps? So, you know, the interesting thing is that it really varies from place to place. In Lebanon, for example, the settlements, we, they're called refugee settlements instead of refugee camps because it's not like recognised by the by the authorities. And which, you know, it, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. But the good thing about that means that there's a lot of self-organisation. So a lot of the actual tents, have, they have you know, their own washing machines in those tents. Or, you know, sometimes like within the settlement, there'll be like a whole row of tents that turn themselves into shops. And it's almost like walking along a bazaar. In Lesbos, on the other hand, it's not like that. The camp is more of a, what I would call a closed camp. It's very limited what's allowed in and what's allowed out and what NGOs are allowed to do. And so the NGOs that are there, there there's an organisation that has washing machines and they basically, they, you know, go around the camp every two weeks and they pick up everybody's stuff and people get their stuff washed every two weeks and then they can drop it all off there and, and then they get it back afterwards. And so, yeah, it really just depends place to place, which is why sometimes we're able to give people the reusable products and sometimes not. But in terms of the actual living conditions, which I'd like to speak about a little bit more actually is... I want to speak about Moria, Moria 1. So obviously that camp burnt down back in August 2019, I believe. Previous to that, I mean, we were sending huge numbers of disposable adult nappies, okay, because the toilets were, this was a huge camp and the toilets were so far away from some of the places where the women were living, it was too dangerous for them to leave their tents at night in fear of sexual violence and sexual assault. And so there were women wearing adult nappies at night because they couldn't, they were so frightened to go to the toilet. I mean, imagine that. Just imagine that, that being your reality. Luckily, that's not the situation in, in this camp now. And the camp is a lot safer. But 
That is the case in other places around the world that I won't necessarily have visited. But yeah, I mean, the conditions vary from place to place. And and I think it often depends on where the media attention is. If the media attention is on a particular group of people in a particular place, then, you know, you have this incredible support. You have everyone jumping in their vans and taking over loads and loads of stuff and, you know, donations are all directed there and you get all the facilities that that you might need. And then there are other places that just aren't in the media at all. They live in similar situations and yet they have, they will have nothing. They won't have facilities and they'll have to, you know, and their lives will be a huge, huge uh, amount more dangerous actually. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm wondering, do you have any personal stories of people that you've met or women that you've met along the way that have highlighted this need to you whilst you were in Lesbos, for example? Yes, I had this really special moment. Like this, I think I will remember this always, actually. When I was um, in Lesbos, I started, and it is still going now, actually, there's there's a group of refugee women who live in the camp who can't use the pads themselves, but they come to a center every day and they sew the pads and then they are given to these Greek students, local students, who then sell them on a donation-for-donation basis to the local community Um, because, you know, they're also eco-friendly products that anyone can use. And I was going in there every week, twice a week, and I became really close to the women that I was making them with, but also the other women who were sort of in in the centre making other things or, you know, they were just there as like a safe space, really. And there were these three teenage girls. I think they were about 14 and they hadn't started their periods yet. And they thought the whole thing was just absolutely hilarious. Like, I've never experienced anything like it. They were hysterical. They were just cackling. The fact that I was holding a, a reusable sanitary product was just the funniest thing they've ever seen in their lives. And they were, you know, asking me questions and then howling at my answers. But I was still going in every week and I was chatting to them about it and I I think I sort of became like a big sister to them I ended up you know talking to them very openly about basic sex education and uh, basic menstrual hygiene education as I've done in in schools in the UK as well and um, a couple of weeks later I think it must have been three weeks after the first sort of hysteria one of the girls came to me and she said can you teach me how to make these because I'd really like to actually use them myself when I start my period and give them to my mum and my sisters because we really can't actually afford these products and my mum has really heavy, heavy periods. You know, these girls came from a culture where actually it's extremely taboo. Like in the UK, it's extremely taboo as well, but like on another level, they may not have even been taught about periods by their parents or anything and they definitely didn't go to school because of the situation they were living in. So the fact that I was able to have that impact was really special and it, it tells me what we can do you know like on a, on a bigger scale because I know that if we can do that with this community what we can do worldwide is like beyond anything like if we can get these clubs in schools around the UK for example get young people making them opening this conversation about periods having people more knowledgeable about period poverty hopefully more empathetic to women around the world and also then in a position that they feel that they can ask questions about their own periods and know who to speak to if they don't have the products that they need. I love it. And how can people get involved in the project? So if you are a sewer or know someone that is, or you have a loud voice and you want to shout at all the sewers to tell them to join us, please contact the Patch Mama project at outlook.com. And we give you all the, you know, everything you need, all the videos on how to make the pads, on how to source materials for free, which we then provide if you can't access them. And we, you know, give you all the newsletters and things on who we're supporting. Other than that, if you'd like to donate, we have a GoFundMe, which is on our website, which is www.thepatchmamaproject.org. And yeah, really, we, we want anyone and everyone to be part of this project in whatever way that you can be. So if you would like to volunteer and you have some of your own ideas, just get in touch with us. Next up, I spoke to my wonderful old friend, Melissa, founder of Pads for Refugees. And tell me about Pads for Refugees. Tell me about what you do and how it came to be. Yeah, so um, I started working on it about two years ago, so right before the pandemic started. And I thought of the idea because I had volunteered in Seattle, Greece with Lifting Hands International, and I worked in the female-friendly space there. And one of the things we did, I think actually I learned about it on my first day, was we distributed pads every month. 
And I ask the same questions that I get all the time. Like, why aren't we distributing reusable pads? Anyway, I just did that for the the times that I was there. We did it once a month and we, you know, ticked off a list of all the residents that came to pick up pads. And while I was there, I just thought about how expensive it was for lifting hands to pass this out every month. And then I got home and the pandemic started. So I did some research and found that pads distributions and lack of period products kind of are happening all over in refugee situations and camps and settlements. I think even in housing after refugees are resettled, it's something that isn't always available to women who need it. And I decided to start Pads for Refugees with two friends and try to help. Amazing. And how's the journey been since then, since you started? What happened next? It's been good. I made a website, did the social media handles, did the official registering of the 501c3. I started posting on social media just to get funds. Fundraised for about six months before we had enough money to give. And the first group we gave to was the one I volunteered with. A few more found us on social media. That's how I met Ella, who you know we'll be talking to also. We've helped nine different orgs in the past two years. We just got a new partner in Lebanon. So now we have two there. And so it's been good. How exciting. So you donate money for them to buy pads on the ground. Yes. So what we do is we fundraise. And since, you know, I'm in the state still, we decided the best thing to do would be to basically just send grants to orgs on the ground. And so that lets the orgs buy pads locally to help whatever economy they're operating in. It gives them some flexibility. So we've had uh, sometimes Some residents have said that they don't like one kind of pad. And so that way they have the funds and the control to survey the residents and get something that they like better rather than just, you know, me, an American woman sending pads over and not giving anyone like any choice, whatever. And that question that you just raised before about why don't you use reusable pads? Can you answer that for us? Yeah. And so at first I don't want to, knock reusable pad because Ella gets to a lot of places that we can't. And she knows this too. They don't work in every environment. If there's no water access, women can't wash the reusable pads. It takes a lot of wash cycles to keep the pads clean for one period. It's also hard to keep clean when you don't have regular water access. And and I think you probably know laundry access is hard to come by in many camp situations where I volunteered, there was water access, but there wasn't a private place for women to hang and dry the pads. And so women wouldn't use them. And so combination of like being able to keep the pads clean and use them. And then also period stigma where some women won't use them at all. And there's two places in Lebanon, the free shop and the health impact where the Pacha project, Ella's pads and my pads go So there's water access there for women to use the reusable pads, but they still want to give the women a choice in what period products they use. And when it comes to choice of period products in the West, right, we see that we have the choice of tampons, that we have the choice of moon cups. Tell me about what those options look like in the communities that you're working in. Yeah, I think because of period stigma and stigmas about virginity, women won't use tampons or cups. And I think cups run into similar problems as pads with being able to have water access to keep them clean. I'm really interested to get a little bit more into the detail of what it's like to be a woman in a refugee camp. What kind of obstacles are you hearing? And uh, do you have any stories that you can tell us about Um, some of the things that we might need to highlight in this episode. It keeps women, if they're not able to take care of their periods, it keeps them from being able to, you know, act in their daily life. They can't go to food distributions. They, I mean, they can't leave their tent. They can't take care of their families. They can't go to social activities. They're kind of just stuck, which is something I don't think any of us, I didn't even think about that until I volunteered and heard firsthand and a lot of research I've done, it's important to know that providing pads isn't like, that doesn't solve the problem. There's a lot of other problems. 
bathrooms aren't safe in a lot of camps. A lot of women wait in long lines or a lot of people wait in long lines, men and women to use bathrooms. Not all bathrooms are uh, segregated by gender. So women are getting sexually harassed in, in the queues and in the bathrooms while they're trying to you know, use the bathroom. Um, many camps aren't lit at night. So it's not safe for them to use the toilets in night. And so one of the aid workers that I worked with said that sometimes women will just use a bottle or they have to hold it. So, I mean, really what we're doing until, I mean, until camps are, I mean, you know, I would rather no one is in a camp and everyone is just able to, you know, find safe housing and start their lives. But until camps are safer, uh, this is basically just a Band-Aid. It's like a really small thing to do. I think it helps a lot, but there's a lot of other issues that that are related to it. I've heard a lot about the impact of not having access to suitable hygiene requirements, right? That it has a massive impact on your reproductive health. A lot of the research I've done has shown that women don't have what they need. They're using old rags or trash or dried leaves. I got a text from one of our partners in Lebanon women were cutting up their children's clothes to use as pads because they didn't have any. Sanitary pads are actually called sanitary pads because the product is clean. Like I think we've kind of taken it to mean like periods are, are, are dirty, but initially like historically it was to advertise new clean products. And so, I mean, it's important to stay clean so you don't get any, get any infections. Also, going back to reusable pads in environments, you know, where there's not a private place to dry them or proper facilities to dry them. I've read that women will hide them when they're not fully dry and then still use them later because that's maybe all I have. And so, of course, you know, that's not sanitary either. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important that both options are provided so women will use what they're comfortable with. And, in, you know, if there's the proper laundry and water facilities, let women choose. And if there's not, then there needs to be ways to make sure that reusable pads are able to be washed and cleaned and dried properly. When we first spoke, which was probably a couple of years ago now, right, you were actually going through a personal experience that gave you a little insight into what life for the women that you support might be like. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was I was living with my parents at the time. I had um, come back from Greece. I hadn't found a job. So I'm staying at my parents' house in Florida. And... Um, our plumbing went out and it it was a it was a disaster. The showers and the toilets exploded. We had to rip up all the carpets. We found out that uh, we had cast iron pipes. And I don't know if this is exclusively American or, or whatever, but in the 50s, a lot of homes were built with these cast iron pipes. And now, you know, 70 years later, they're deteriorating. So our plumbing was out for like nine months. The first few months, we couldn't really use the toilets at all. So during a pandemic, we had to leave and, you know, go to the store or whatever. So I had I had a lot of periods without and a fully functioning toilet. Eventually, we were able to, and we could like pee in the toilet, but we still had to leave um, a few times a day or once a day. But uh, it was really frustrating. It was hard to find plumbers. It, anyway, it, it just took a long time to get it sorted out. And when I would tell people about it, the first thing they would say was, well, now you know how the women in the camps that you send paths to feel or what they're dealing with. But I don't really know that that was true. You know, we couldn't take showers for a while. We had to go get hotels and shower or whatever, but I still had a car. I still had money to buy pads. I had money to buy like wet wipes so I could stay clean. I could drive. I could leave where I lived. I'm not in this closed camp. I could drive wherever I wanted and go find a public restroom that 
I am a hundred percent positive is better than the ones that many of these women are forced to use on their periods. And so it was just really interesting to me to have this huge inconvenience, but still know that it's not anything like what these women were going through. Yeah, because it puts it it's so into perspective that for us, your experience and what you were going through is exactly as you say, so inconvenient, actually quite shocking for people in the West to conceive of living without plumbing, running water, going to the toilet or having a shower in your house for months at a time. Yet it's still a chunk better than life and circumstances in a refugee camp. We can't even conceive of how difficult this is. Yeah, we can't. And I mean, I would encourage viewers to just Google like refugee camp toilets or bathrooms and just see uh, what people have to. I mean, it's it's not fun. It's not pleasant. Even when you're not on your period, just having to use those facilities, they're not great. And good NGOs are working on fixing that problem, too. It's not gone unnoticed but it's a hard thing to manage in an overcrowded camp when there's a lot of people that need to use the facilities well and you know we know that from experiences of going to festivals or going to and again I don't want to liken a festival to a refugee camp because it's nowhere near but we know what it looks like when a portaloo has been used by thousands of people for a matter of days. And we know how we feel when we've been to a festival for a few days, haven't had a shower, haven't had the facilities that we're used to, and how it is actually one of the things that makes us feel so unlike ourselves and unhuman almost. I know the difference of when I've had like the first shower in a week for example, as a few times in my life where that's been the case and the difference of how you feel beforehand and after is is very, very big. And I've spoken to women and girls before in camps that, you know, haven't looked in a mirror for six months to a year that I've taken a photo of someone and they said, oh, can I see it? I actually haven't seen myself for a year. And that's wild again to me that we are so far removed from that reality and it was it shocked me for a second I was like that's something I think about a lot like I am constantly infuriated that women can't have this basic need a lot of people think like well that's over there or there's I'm just one person how can I even help but um there are people that donate to our nonprofit that donate $5 a month. That's like giving up one cup of coffee a month. And it costs about $20 US dollars for us to, it's an average because it prices for pads are different in every place. But $20 covers like a woman's pads for a year, you know? And so I think if we just give up a little bit for this or any cause that we think is really important I think it'll make a huge difference. Lisa where can listeners find more about pads for refugees and how they can get involved? The website is very easy it's pads for refugees it's the number four so padsforrefugees.org and our Instagram and our Facebook and our Twitter and our LinkedIn are all the same it's just pads for refugees. Okay, so we've heard it from Melissa, we've heard it from Ella, but now let's hear it from the people on the ground. This week, I've been in Lebanon, home to 1.5 million Syrian refugees. I visited the Bekaa Valley, right on the Syrian border, where over 300,000 Syrian people live in tented communities. I joined the Syrian Eyes team for a distribution of sanitary products to really understand the need on the ground. So here's my friend Dara, whilst in the midst of the chaos of the distribution. There is a lot of haggling back and forth because we get per tent two packs of the women's pads, sanitary pads. But it's not fair because certain families have like 15 people with five women who are in need. So we're just distributing now and whenever we run out, we have to go back and buy more. Hafian. In order to avoid that, we now register each woman's name separately from her husband. 
And then we have the Pampers per, fam per woman who has a baby, she gets one if it's under one year old. And a box of baby milk. No, we, we had fist fights on our stock. I need to keep the emotional distance. If you get attached to one child, you get sick. If he gets sick, I will not sleep tonight. So I keep my distance. Each woman's name to make sure all the women from each family got the sanitary pads. With the children, we have a ready-made list because we did a... We did a assessment of the entire camp for each family, how many members, how many children, any medical... It was two days of nightmares. We were working eight hours and we had like 10, 12 people with us. But the problem is the family shift. Multiple wives, sometimes the wives didn't register right. I, I bought 324 packs of sanitary pads. I'm sure we are running out and we have to go get another 100 because there is some miss comes because we said two per tent, not per family. Some families have three, some tents have three families living inside. So we know we're running out, but the baby milk is the same. The baby milk and the pampers we ordered extra because in the meantime, there has been another 10 women giving birth or giving birth in a few days. We've only done one third yet. Women. Three hundred twenty packs for each tent to one hundred sixty tents. Whilst in the Bekar Valley, I was also lucky enough to visit the incredible free shop that both Ella and Melissa mentioned distributes their pads for free to the Syrian communities who live here. Let's hear some words from Dalal through a translator who works in the free shop herself and explains the response to the reusable pads in the shop. The economy now is really bad and uh, everything is expensive. You know, the pads, the normal pads, always something like that. It's really expensive now in uh, Lebanon. So the people like the idea and it's new, really, really new for them. And 80-100% uh, uh, they like it and uh, they, want, they ask about more for them. Back in Beirut, I popped in to see Mili, the founder of Wing Women Lebanon, another organisation making reusable pads but with a slightly different model from Ella and the Pachamama project. Mili employs people here in Lebanon to make the pads, running Wing Women Lebanon as a social enterprise and providing a sustainable income for her team. Let's start from the beginning. Maybe you can introduce mm. yourself and Wing yeah. Women and what you do. So I'm Mili. We started Wing Women in October after the explosion, after some funding came in after that. And it started very much as a, a mental health session to get some women together, do some sewing, have a coffee, have a chat. And then quite quickly, the women pointed out that this was fun, but they needed to make money, which slightly gave me a heart attack how I was going to do that. And then um, we were trying to think, we were really trying to think of a non-luxury item because the thought of trying to sell a luxury item in a financial crisis just did not seem viable. It's, you know, it started slowly. We were trying to make them ourselves and then they started making them with some help from the Pachamama Project who suggested some ideas for us of how to make our first templates and then they were saying that they were giving them all to their friends. So I was like, okay, there's something here. And then asking for more if they could take them home and give them out. So then we started making them a bit more. And it's sort of just gone from there, really. I love it. How would you describe the need here on the ground? Oh, God. <clears throat> Endless. Obviously, the currency has skyrocketed, which in turn has made everything more expensive. I think on the initial rate that people were earning the salaries that they are still earning the salaries haven't gone up even though the rate has period pads are worth about 25 dollars a pack which is insane amounts of money even before which is the minimum wage for a month which is the minimum wage yeah you just constantly hear stories 
of people facing daily challenges that you would hope nobody would ever face. Not being able to shower because you cannot heat your water and it is freezing here at the moment. There's been a real shift from people not living comfortably, but, you know, surviving in relative comfort to people really, really struggling. Middle-class people, refugee, anyone. It could be everybody. I was doing some calculations the other day that... I think it's on average 26% of a population is of menstruating age, which is 1.5 million people here, roughly. And 78% of those are living in poverty now. So I'm sort of taking that to mean that 78% of them are living in period poverty too. And I don't know if you've seen any of the articles, but the alternative products that people are using... It's just horrific. I mean, it's like, I mean, the worst one I heard was leaves. Then there's newspapers, old rags. I suppose that is basically what we're doing in a slightly more dignified way. But it's it's massive. You know, every, every event that we do, we've never got enough pads for how many people want them. Because all the staff then want them or other people around that see the event going on. It's obviously just endless. And, and it's been interesting because often at these events, people are a bit unsure about whether to try them. And then there's a sort of fun awareness session. And by the end, the women are like, oh, I don't know how I feel about it, but I'll try. And then we've gathered lots of feedback and it's been really, really positive with lots of thank yous and just clearly showing that it was so needed. And they work as well. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, they do seem to work. That was always a minor scare. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't put that in. In terms of the demographic of the women that are using your products, do you specify? I think a lot of what's coming out of the research that's going on now is that it's everybody. You know, it used to be mainly people living in refugee camps, but I think it's more and more becoming the Lebanese people too. We definitely don't discriminate on who we give to and who we employ and we hope we have a lot of Syrian and Palestinian people working for us at the moment mainly women and we hope that the next people we employ will be Lebanese because not only do they need jobs we see that as a big opportunity to kind of build connections between Lebanese people and Syrians and Palestinians where there is a bit of tension. Mm -hmm. How does it work? You make the pads in Shatila at the mm -hmm. moment right and then tell me a little bit about the process so yeah so the women all have a sewing machine each and you know it initially started that they could work in their own houses if they wanted to but they've actually created the the initial eight women that are with us have created two hubs so one in Rima's house one in Fadia's house we pay a little bit towards them having extra electricity and then once a week Somebody else goes, delivers them the new material that they need to make the pads for next week and collects the pads that they've made that week. They then come to our office, a.k.a. my house. Wait, hold on. I've got a question. So these women are in Shatila and are they Syrian and Palestinian? They are Syrian and Palestinian. Okay. Hence the next group of women that we employ, we want to be Lebanese mm -hmm. or migrant from the migrant community. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so then they come to my house and then once a week, a different group of people come in including one man, which we feel is actually probably quite important. You know, He's here today, right? He's here today. <laughs> I actually quite strongly feel that, you know, we can do all we want to to break down stigmas within the female community, but if they then go home and they still have this stigma and taboo from the men, I wonder how far we're ever going to get. You know, it's a start, <laughs> but actually bringing the men into the conversation we see is really important. They're actually currently planning how we can do a session for men, how firstly we can persuade them to come, but then secondly engage in a session on periods, not necessarily period poverty, but just understanding what women are dealing with having their periods, particularly in the situation that they're living in in Lebanon. Yeah, so they come once a week, check through all the pads to check the quality, and then we pack them into these small, pretty little bags and then do our best to sell them. Who are your current orders with, NGOs or...? Yeah. yeah, so we currently sell to NGOs mainly. It's easier for us because they do bulk orders. We have sold commercially to a few individuals, but it's not, it's not very viable at the mm -hmm. moment. Amazing. So actually there will be a mixture of the end user paying if they can, but also lots of people getting the pads for free. Yeah, exactly.
Amazing. And what are some of the stigmas that you've come across? Can you give us an example of stigma around talking about periods in Lebanon? Oh, a specific stigma. I mean, just generally, people are very uncomfortable, particularly in front of men and boys, but also in front of each other, which is something that's been amazing from the events is seeing the women realise how ridiculous it is that it is so taboo and then getting really angry about the fact that it is so taboo. They get super animated and it is... It's so lovely to be able to give them that space to shout and say how angry and ridiculous it is to each other. And they all have this big discussion and, you know, people stand up and are just like, how have we been living through this? It's so visual how empowering this is. You know, it will be really interesting in the future to look at the impact that has long term. But in the moment, you really feel like you've empowered these women to speak about these things. (laughs) Just to give them the language to actually challenge these things that are ridiculous. And just try and see it as just another normal bodily process. Mm. Yeah, like buying tissues to blow your nose. Yeah, exactly. Literally the same. I've been trying to think of an example (laughs) that is relatable, (laughs) like something coming out of you. I didn't really name any specific stigmas, but I guess some of the myths might be that you can't cook on your period, you can't shower on your period. You need to shower even more on your period, surely. I mean, we've come across a lot of conversation about the sensitivities surrounding the hymen and virginity through our work. Our pads have a popper on them to do up. And one woman expressed concern because she had the period pad in with the popper done up and she had kind of like a leotard on with a popper. Both the poppers touched each other and she was concerned that that might affect her hymen. We just heard in Cairo uh, something that I've never heard of before. What did they call it? A virginity test. A virginity test where they'd actually test to oh, see that the hymen was Princess still intact. Had that. Yeah. Are you kidding? No, it's insane. This what? social construct. I know. How is that? <laughs> so you haven't heard of that here? I'm sure it happens. There's, I've heard of plastic surgery to make women look like they have not lost their virginity. Wow. So they're very concerned about proving their virginity. Mm. And this, yeah. So I guess, hence not using tampons. Yep, exactly. Or cups. Yeah. I mean, it's just another example of the double standard. I mean, a lot of men, I think, are also virgins here too. But the double standards held for women, as always, that they must be virgins, whereas Mm. for men, it is a bit more acceptable. You know, I have met men that have had sex who would not date a woman who had. Yeah. But it does also just come down to education and understanding, I think. You know, I'm sure if you kind of explain these things to these men, it will not happen easily. But the message does get through a bit. You know, some of our friends that have these views that we've now spent a lot of time with and explained and modelled such (laughs) behaviours to. But you're right, that is it. I don't think that it necessarily comes from a place of, like, malice. It also comes down to what you've always been told. Well, amazing. I think the work that you're doing is really, really wonderful. And as I said, it seems like you've created a bit of a name for yourself in this space in Lebanon. Your reputation precedes you. Is that the right phrase? I don't know, know, but we'll take it. (laughs) We'll go with it. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. Let's finish with a few important words from one of Mili's team, Abir. A Syrian refugee herself who has firsthand seen the impact of the pads amongst her community. I'm so happy to work in this project and advise every woman to use these pads because they do not contain like bad material. Mm-hmm. Well, natural and, materials. And natural. Have you met many of the women who use the pads? Our neighbors, my sisters. Now, lots of women have these pets. Amazing. And can you see how it's changing their lives? Yeah. It makes life easier because the pets that we usually use are now so expensive. So instead of buying, 
beds, we could use this if we don't have money to, to bring them. Mm -hmm. And the packs are so beautiful. I think the colors and the details, I'm very impressed by. It's like getting a present, right? Okay. Do you ever use the options of tampons instead of a pad? Oh. You know this? Do you know about this? It's like... Uh, like it's a small little... Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> no. You don't use it here. No, we did not use it. I don't use it. So strong, it's heavy, and you have many plants. Okay, so you need all of the pads. Uh, <laughs> me too. Women supporting women. This episode makes my heart burst and I'm so happy to share the work of the Patrimama Project, Pads for Refugees, The Free Shop, Syrian Eyes and Wing Women Lebanon with you. To find out more about any of these amazing grassroots groups, check out the links in the episode notes. Thank you for listening today. I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. Finally, please go and give our amazing sponsor a visit at lovewelcomes.org or lovewelcomes on Instagram. Remember to use the code WWT at checkout for 10% off. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.